welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me is my mother and co-host, Caroline Kilborn. Oh, hello, everyone. <laughs> Our guest today is Polo Altinsky-Ross, and he is um, my neighbor in Fairfield, Iowa, and I've known him for a couple of years, and I've known that he's been working on this book that is really, it's quite an incredible story. Oh, I should say so. <laughs> it is the translation of his great-grandfather's memoirs, and the title of the book is The Polish Prince. And Polo went to, in 2018, he went to visit his mother's grandfather, along with the rest of his um, family, and told him, that he was interested in um, in these memoirs. And as a result, his grandfather, Bignia, passed on the book to me, to him to take care of his legacy and gave Polo his blessings to change his story however he saw fit. And during the following summers in England, Polo worked with his mother to translate it in full and then to verify its historical accuracy and then turn it into a sequential story that could be read and hold people's interest. And it has been published by his mother, Patrizia, in the UK and is being distributed worldwide, is available in the US. In November of 2018, Polo's great-grandfather passed away and he... Um, but his story, his story lives on in this book, The Polish Prince. And Polo is a 12th grader in high school, and we'll ask, be asking him some more about, about his future as well. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Polo. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast. <laughs> First one ever. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> so I know that you've been working on this since 2018, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And actually, that's not that long for a first book, and particularly one with the complexity of this. How much time a week? And, I mean, did you work on it continuously? Well, yeah. So um, I actually got hold, got hold of the original memoirs in 2017, and, you know, I'd heard just snippets of my great-grandfather's story, and I, I was about 11 years old in 2017. I'm 16 now. And so, of course, you know, I didn't have the most developed writing skills. But, you know, I, I read just some Google translations of his of his original Polish um, writing, which he never published from he wrote about 30 years ago. And, you know, I was just incredibly um, entranced in his story, even though I only read Google translated chapters, which, as you know, aren't very, um, very accurate. And the following summer, we, you know, we went to Poland, all my family, and he was about 92 or three or something. Um, he was born in 1926. So someone can do the math, but, um, we visited him and I, I told him about the story. I told him my interest in his story. And, you know, he just said, you can do whatever you want with it. You know, I, I trust you. And I was, I was 12 when I visited him the last time. Um, and later that year, he passed away. Um, but ever since then, it really became my goal to, um, you know, to take his story and to actually make it into a, a real book because that was his goal. Um, and it just felt like it was something that, you know, it's my bloodline and it's an insane story. So I just thought, <laughs> why not do that? 
And so to, to answer your question, um, so the following few years, you know, I sort of worked on it on and off for about a year and a half. You know, I was, what, 12, 13. At the time, I, you know, I didn't know that much about history. I just heard that there's this, it's a war book and, you know, there's tanks, there's, there's Germans, there's, um, you know, people fighting, all of that. And then, you know, as I matured and grew up, um, you know, I thought, hang on, I really want to make this historically accurate. I want to keep his voice. I don't want to um, make it, uh, you know, not sound like him. I want to keep it entirely authentic because this is a piece of history. And so eventually I decided to, um, with my mother, we went through, she fluently speaks Polish. I don't, unfortunately, yet. Uh, there's always time. <laughs> Um, but she, uh, helped me word by word. Um, we translated, you know, all of the chapters, all of them, all of the memoirs, um, of my great grandfather's story. And that took that oh, hours. I remember actually doing that. Um, you know, I did it in my summers in England as I've, as you mentioned. Um, but during COVID especially, you know, when schools went online and, you know, through that summer, um, I, I remember being on calls with my mum for six, seven hours, and we just go through every single word. We didn't want to lose anything, any part of his story, any part of his perspective, even if, you know, maybe we didn't agree with certain things, the way he phrased things or his own opinions. You know, we wanted to keep it completely accurate. So six, seven hours every day, we did that for that entire summer and then through the remainder of that year. So that's 2020. Um, and then in 2021, I, you know, sort of, learn a bit more about the historical facts and put together um, footnotes in the book and just make sure that verified that everything was correct. Everything, you know, he talked about the massacres, the, um, the concentration camps, the events on specific days, um, it, and it all lined up. There was nothing, it was insanely accurate. And then after that, I got illustrations done by a Ukrainian who is actually now had to flee her home. She lived in Kharkiv. Um, and that's where the, the Russians are fighting right now. And so that was last summer before the Ukraine war. She did about 10 illustrations, which are in the book. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. Our guest today is Polo Ross, Polo Altinsky Ross, who is the uh, translator of his great-grandfather's memoirs, The Polish Prince. Although, as, you, as he just explained, it was a little more than just translating. But I think that's often the case with translations, not this word equals that word, and that's all you have to do. Often there's some restructuring that has to be done by the translator, although in this case probably more than most. You mentioned that your grandfather did try to publish um, in his lifetime. What were some of the things he did and what kind of results did he have? Well, I don't know too much. All I know is that... Um he, he wrote these memoirs in about the late 80s, early 90s, and then he was in his, in his 60s or so, maybe, yeah, mid-60s. This was in Poland, and so he, that's an area where, you know, these World War II stories, that are, I imagine, are a lot more common because, you know, that's where it all happened. And so um, he never actually managed to find a publisher. So, Mom, what did you think as you were reading this because... Um... You know, some of this was in your lifetime, although you were a very small child yeah, at the time. Right. Well, I, what, what got me was, what interested me was the details. 
did did his did his grandfather keep a journal or a diary or how did he remember all these things? I mean, <laughs> this was amazing. That's true, and it's and even if he had kept one, I doubt if he would have been able to hang on to it through his various adventures. Oh my gosh, I know, and th- th- yes, adventures, and the fact that he was able to maneuver survive. through all those things, yes, maneuver and survive through through all that uh, turmoil of the the, the uh, Nazis and the Russians and the, the Ukrainian uh, people that didn't like the poles, and I mean, golly. I just it's a, it is it's a miracle. It is a miracle that he survived. And that's why these memoirs are so precious because it is a miracle. To me it was. Can you give us Polo a little sort of background of what Poland's role in was in world geography, world the world political stage during this time period because it really is an important aspect of the story. Yeah, so um, there were a lot of changes in, in these times. And for I believe it was until, so if I go back a little bit even further in time to about, uh, you know, 1918, um, Poland was wiped off the map for, I believe it was 123 years up to that point. You know, At, before then you had the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you had the German Empire and you had the Russian Empire, which all... Um, had Polish people within their own borders and where Poland is today, that, that area of Eastern Europe was all divided among these empires. And before then, you had other empires, um, which, you know, ransacked that area of Europe because you're, you're right in between, you know, all these great powers. And so it was, um, you know, it was not, Poland did not exist for hundreds of years. And so after the First World War, um, the Polish gained Polish country gained independence, and then they went ended up going to war with I believe the Ukrainians with um, with Russia all for territory in that area, um, and they they actually won won that war. They beat the Russians in 1920, and then there was a treaty which is in the book which kind of explains a bit of the history. There's a treaty of Riga which um, defined the the borders in that area, and so Poland was actually. A, a little, quite a bit bigger and further eastern than it is today, and the territory that it wa- that it once was. This was called the Second Polish Republic from about 1920 until the outbreak of the Second World War. Um, that territory included included parts of Belarus and, and also a large part of Western Ukraine today, and then may, maybe even um, some of the Baltic states. I'm not sh- not so sure about that, um, but a lot of the territory in the east which Poland had gained also. C- contained, as that was previously Ukrainian and Belarusian land, um, a lot of Ukrainians and a lot of uh, people from different nationalities. And so where my great-grandfather was, was um, in the town of Rivnia, which um, was majority Ukrainian and then, you know, a large portion Poles and then also Germans and Russians. And so with the outbreak of the Second World War, you know, both the Germans and Russians um, have a non-aggression pact right before the war starts, and they both invade Poland from both sides. And so Poland, once again, after 20 years of independence, no longer exists. And you know, the, many people thought that was a third partition of Poland. And you know that that's how it continued until the end of the Second World War, um, when Poland the borders were completely shifted to the left um, <laughs> to part of German territory, 
and mm. you know the Ukrainian area it became part of Ukraine again because there was this it's all it's so complicated because this area was a melting pot of so many nationalities and that's kind of what's so interesting because my great grandfather he knew four languages unfortunately not English but you know he knew <laughs> Polish German <laughs> Ukrainian and Russian and that's what saved his life because all of these yeah. nationalities oh, they're all yeah. battling for ownership of this land to that for that part to become you know their own territory and so that kind of I hope that answers your question it does and where he grew up is no longer part of Poland correct yeah and so now it's part of western Ukraine it's near if you've seen in the news it's near Lviv mm. um, it's just northeast of there mm. and what is it like <laughs> What is it that made one resident there Polish and another Ukrainian if there had been such a mix for so long? And how how did you know who was what and what was who? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, um, so before the war, you know, there were all of these nations, all of these people from different countries. And now because, you know, within you could say within one lifetime. And so let's imagine it's 1939, you know, the people that are administering government the people that you know exist in that time they've all seen the first world war which has you know touched that territory and so before that you know the borders are all different and so you know these people they still have their you know ukrainian heritage their polish heritage even if poland didn't exist you know the language was still there and so that's how it kept kept alive i guess ah. and so you know they all spoke their own languages and so the school that my great-grandfather went you know the they they had classes in polish and you in Ukrainian and, and in other um, languages. Um, and it was also separated a lot by religion. So the, the Polish were the Catholics, the Ukrainians and the Russians were like Orthodox Christians, and then the Germans were evangelists. And then you also had, you know, a lot of Jews in that area. Wow. And your your grandfather witnessed a lot of atrocities towards the Jews, and he seemed like he never went along with that. Yeah, so he wasn't Jewish himself. He was, I believe he was technically Catholic. Um, but he, um, you know, he had a lot of friends that were Jewish and uh, about half of the occupants of his city where he grew up um, was were, were Jewish people. And so when the Germans came in in 19... Okay, so when the Russians and the Germans split Poland, he was in the territory, eastern Poland, that's the area that the Russians were. So they occupied that area of Poland. And so even you'd have Polish people flee from the western part of Poland, which was then occupied by the Germans, because, you know, the Germans were more harsh towards Jewish people than the Russians were. The Russians weren't as anti-Semitic. Um, <laughs> and, of course. Um, no, and like, so not as, but just yeah. a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it wasn't as bad for them. And so they, even though there were... There were atrocities that occurred um, of Russians, you know, deporting um, Polish people and, and you know, just normal people. And a lot of the uh, administration of those regions, that there was a number of massacres that the Russians committed. It's the same thing happening in Ukraine today, which is, you know, kind of shocking how all it's insane. Um, uh, yeah. But back on the topic, so that you have these, um, these Polish people who would come to this area because it's under Russian control. And then two years later... Um, the, the Germans, you know, Nazi Germany has pa basically taken over the entire of Europe. You can see in the maps in the book. And then they invade the Soviet Union in on June 22nd, 1941. That's 
when that area becomes part of German territory because they caught the Russians entirely by surprise, then, of course, that region had the um, behind the front as the Germans moved further into Russia in 1941. You had these groups of um, these killing squads. And in the beginning of the Holocaust, before they had all of the, the gas chambers um, and they had all the systemized killing, um, in the beginning they had, you know, it was the Holocaust by bullets. So they just shoot people into ravines and into um, ditches. And so that's, he witnessed on November 6th to 7th, the Sosenki Forest Massacre. And that's where um, the Germans, which actually had support from Ukrainian policemen who allied with the Germans. Now, that's not representative of Ukrainians as a whole, just a small part. But at that time, there were Ukrainians who allied with the Nazis. And um, it gets more complicated because today Putin's using the same um, like justification of saying that Ukrainians are Nazis and that's why he's invading. Um, but that's not true. It was There were Ukrainians that allied with the Nazis, but it was a very small portion uh, but in 1941, November 6th to 7th, Sosenki Forest Massacre, including my great-grandfather's, one of his, like, childhood sweethearts. I don't know if you two remember from the story, Masha. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. You know, she mm-hmm. she was, I believe, a victim of that massacre. And that's where, you know, they, the Germans murdered six, about about half of the town, 15, 16,000 Jews in this forest, oh. and there's a memorial there today. And he, my great-grandfather went with his friend. They managed to borrow a bike from some friend who worked in the German post, and they managed to sneak up, because they knew the area very well, and they managed to sneak up through some shrubbery, and they witnessed directly, they witnessed these killings. And um, the fact that, you know, they didn't get caught is insane. And, you know, they end up going back home, and, you know, their mothers are crying, obviously, because, you know, the, there's this one quote I remember... Uh, reading where his mother says, you know, the Germans don't like witnesses of their crimes. They would kill you without a thought. So it's not like um, he just, you know, he it was a crime, I guess, for him at the time to witness that. He shouldn't have seen that, but he did. Wow. And, you know, he was only 15, about my age, a little younger. So it's just shocking. Um, One of the things that struck me was um, towards the end of the book where he's having a conversation with, um, a German friend and who's saying that, you know, the Fuhrer was so wise and your grandfather's saying, are you kidding? You know, wise, if he was wise, he wouldn't have invaded Russia because right. that was just such <laughs> right. a stupid thing to do. <laughs> I mean, he didn't say it in those words, but that's basically what he, what he meant. And it's like, I was so impressed with not only, your grandfather, your great grandfather's sort of grasp of the world political situation, but also, well, there's two things. One is he never blamed other members of a group for atrocities committed by somebody else in their group. He didn't seem to hold a grudge. I, I mean, I felt like he never maybe completely trusted Germans as a whole, but he still had German friends later in life. And he, you know, same with, you know, Ukrainians. He was almost killed by... Now, this is what really confused me because it was like he had... He was trying to get away from the Ukrainian insurgents. I'm like, well, who are they insurging against? You know, who are they against that he was afraid of them? Because if they were against... And so I looked it up, and it turned out 
that the Ukrainian insurgents were like the only underground movement or one of very few in World War II who fought against both sides, the Allies and the Axis powers. So they fought against Russia. They fought against Germany. They fought against everybody. Um, and But they were very cruel, too. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you I really think the first point you made about my great grandfather um, about his his perspective and his sort of neutrality, you could say, that's, I guess, what makes this book special is because he doesn't exactly what you said. You nailed it. Um, he you know, he doesn't uh, pick on one side. So, you know, in the beginning of the war, he sees the Germans massacre, even his friends. He sees that firsthand. And later in the war, he's deported to Germany when the war's coming to an end. And, um, you know, he ends up having a German girlfriend who he cares for. And it turns out that her brother, you know, was fighting on the Eastern Front. And um, he passed away as well. But that's that's all in there. I don't want to spoil it. But um, <laughs> it's just, you know, he, he sees the Ukrainians again. Um, there were so many great Ukrainian friends he had. There's this one friend. Um, he also had who you read about in the beginning of the book and he was Ukrainian and he had a lot of Ukrainian friends who, you know, saved him and that, you know, they, that actually helped him. But at the same time, you had these nationalists that were going around and killing people with hatchets and with different things. There's, there's a brilliant movie I saw about specifically what happened in that region. It's called, I must pronounce, it's, it's called Volnia or I think in English they changed the movie to Hatred. It's uh, exactly about where my great grandfather was, and it shows what the Ukrainians were doing and what the, you know, even the Polish had retaliatory groups where they would go around killing Ukrainians <laughs> as well. So it's, it's, um, the Ukrainians killed something like 60 to 100,000 Polish people, but then the Polish killed a couple thousand in, re in retaliation. So it's, you know, in one point in the book, he, he talks about, you know, he had an axe under his pillow in case anyone came for him because later, 1943, the Germans are starting to lose in Russia, um, but they still have control of that territory where he was. And the Ukrainians and the different insurgent armies, you had the Polish insurgents, the home army, you had those Ukrainian nationalists, you even had the Soviet partisans, and they were all battling the Germans as well as each other in that region. Um, and so, you know, the German garrison in the region couldn't even control the situation at night, and they barely had control during the day. And so, like... It was some, something crazy. He mentions uh, a German general. Yeah, there's a German general during the day inside of their headquarters or like just going to their car in the in the German area, like German administration area, supposed to be very closely guarded, that was kidnapped by these nationalists in the middle of the city in the middle of the day. And that it just shows um, you know, how, how hectic that, that must have been. You, you know, you don't know... It's just insane. I, I can't believe that's you know, only a lifetime ago. Yeah. Alas. Yeah. Now, the other thing, and Mom, you can um, chime in on here. The other thing that really impresses me is your grand, your great-grandfather's use of language. And so I – but I have to ask, how much of that is actually him – and how much of it was you and your mother in translation? Because you, there's just so many um, really original ways of describing things. I will admit that a large, I did have to change a lot of things. And there were certain ways that he explained things that had to be changed. Because um, with 
you know, Polish dialect, there are certain phrases that are used that um, don't make any sense in English. And there are a couple I had to clarify in the footnotes. Um, and there may even be some more that I didn't really pick up on that other people might notice. What, what, what on earth is that? What, what's that expression? Um, but I, I did add a, lot, a fair bit of descriptive terms. And I, you know, I did my best to kind of, you know, really show the images and not just, you know, more showing rather than just telling as my, as my English teachers said, you know, when I showed them <laughs> some bits a while ago. Um, and yeah, so a lot of it is him, a lot of the, you know, the poetic nature of the way he phrased things, a lot of it is him. And then some of it is, is myself. Wow. Well, yeah. it's, it's pretty impressive. I, there were a lot of places where it just sort of stopped me in my tracks and like, wow, that is such a unique way of, of um, describing this. Thank did you, you. Did you have that experience too, Mom? Well, I'll tell you what, what really got to me was that they were almost always starving. I mean, a piece of bread a day, that's it. I, how did they survive? I, it's just unbelievable to me. You know, I just, I don't know. I just, it's just amazing. It, it was a miracle. It was just absolutely a miracle that his grandfather survived in all those times and that so many people did. And uh, I don't know. I just, I can't even imagine it. Can't imagine yeah. it. There's this one phrase that I think that he, you know, he put really well um, was when the Russians were being, in, a lot of them were encircled by the Germans in the beginning of the war. Like there was one encirclement of 700,000 soldiers in one city in Kiev, I believe. Um, and, so he had a, a lot of Russians that were transported to where he was because there were large prison camps there. And, you know, these Russians, they would throw their clothes over the fences and they would eat the grass to the last straw. Like, it's just insane. And, and the way he, you know, there's this one line that always sticks with me um, where he said, you know, I now see what bread could be for a man. You know, everything, everything. Mm, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And people could get shot for giving bread to a to a Jew or to a, a Russian prisoner of war. Yes. Just, or, and yet, or to and yet, Polish. <laughs> and yet, your your father and or your grandfather in different. He had had a job at one point where he had access to food supplies because he was helping to make the ration kits for the Germans, um, and who were fighting on the Russian front, and. He, he would sneak food to people at the risk of his own life all the time. Yeah, that's right. And never got caught. I wonder yeah, if... Yeah, but even then, yeah, um, it, you know, it's just... I mean, the fact that he did that is something, but even then, um, if he managed to... Have, his mother would always dig up something, but then later in the, the other jobs he had, it was, you know, even more difficult to get food. That was a... A blessing for him, I guess. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah. I wonder if yeah. there were a lot of a lot of people in positions of some authority who would look the other way because they really didn't agree with what was going on. You know, and if that's part of what, why he was able to get away with so much during this during the war. Well. So, Polo, could you read a little bit from the Polish prince? Sure. Is there any particular part that you think would really strike the audience? Is there um, any specific chapter, you know, when he's maybe when he's being deported to Germany or when he's, you know, he's 
or maybe um, um, maybe when he's captured by the Ukrainians. Sure, yeah, that's chapter. I've got it in front of me. Um, that's chapter chapter ten, I believe. Doomka saves lives, which hmm. is interesting. Hmm. Doomka is um, just for the audience, so they understand. It's like a you know like a Slavic um, type of song or um, tune, and so he knew hundreds of these tunes because he um, actually pra- uh, played. Uh, he had a friend who played the bandura, and and this was a Ukrainian friend who ends up being in the camp that he that he gets captured by and transported to. Um, and so I'm going to read some of the chapter, and that may explain why Doomka saves lives. All right. So, chapter 10. <clears throat> I stood stiffly, tied by my arms and legs to the trunk of a pine tree, and peered all around at what was going on in the forest camp of the UPA Sotnia, led by General Lapitska, who was surprisingly of Polish descent in Hornia. So I, I, there's, no, there's a footnote by the word Sotnia, That's a military unit of approximately 100 soldiers. It seemed to be a normal camp life. In the the evening, there was a buzz of talks and commands, and then someone hung a boiler far above a fire, in which they were apparently cooking dinner because the tasty smell of smoked meat reached my nose, teasing my famished stomach, which had been fasting for several days. I knew this area, this forest, during long wanderings with my father, an avid angler, I got to know these parts of Wowin's Palesche well. While he soaked his stick and stared at the still water for hours, I was easily bored, so I explored the area around Hornia, the river of my childhood. The river would meander among the high, precipitous banks and cut here and there through wood, wooded ravines whose bottoms were covered with crystal-clear pools. The burial mounds, the high graves erected hundreds or thousands of years ago, were visible on the distant horizon. Further on, the north banks of the river became lowered and the region was covered by an undivided forest which stretched all the way to the estuary by the swampy banks of Prisepi. Pripesi. I looked at the forest I knew, but my thoughts were conflicted. What is waiting for me? What will they do with me? Shuddering thoughts stung my head. Get away, but how? Tied by my arms and legs, I had no way of escaping, and the Banderites were wandering around the camp, time to time giving me ominous looks. So I'm going to pause quickly. The Banderites, that's this group of Ukrainian nationalists who captured him in the previous chapter. So, continuing on to the next page. Someone threw branches to the fire, and it burst forth, illuminating a wide circle. The armed people gathered at the campfire, all wearing caps with signs of tridents. They were dressed in various uniforms, black Ukrainian police of their time under German command, standard German Feldgrau uniforms, Hungarian brick-coloured garments, and even the khaki green attire of the pre-war Polish army. There were also many weapons, Polish and German Morses, Soviet Mosins, and even short Italian Carabiners. At the campfire, it became more crowded and bustling. After supper, among the seated circle of men were dense scatterings of moonshine bottles. The buzz of conversations drowned out my contemplation. At some point, the conversation came to me. 
I set my ears. What does the commander want to do with him, with this Lashik, they were wondering. Now, Lashik is a term used to refer to poles. We'll probably play with him, others guessed. As I overheard this, a shiver shot down my spine. I had seen the results of these Banderites dalliance in the burned Polish villages and settlements of Bowen. The devil himself would not come up with a crueler death than one from UPA hands. Once, I saw people who were chopped, burned, and torn apart with the aid of two bent trees. What was to await me? And I got caught so stupidly. Now there's a scene break that shows. Um, it goes back in time to explain, you know, the entire part of how he gets caught. As the Germans dismantled all schools in 1941, the youth were subsequently employed where the occupants of the war machine demanded. After numerous jobs, I worked with the German mail and telegraph teams. The number of destructions of the telephone poles increased every each day, and now weeks had come when my mother rarely saw me at home. It was a hot summer in 1943. The Germans only had power in the city. In the provinces, the UPA, Soviet and Polish guerrillas dominated indivisibly, and sabotages on a large scale occurred on a daily basis. So our next job did not surprise us. A kilometre behind the city, along the Rauni Kiwurs, I could pronounce that wrong, uh, railway line, were collapsed telephone poles. Under the cover of German gendarmerie, put up the columns and connected the wires from dawn to dusk. When the German commander arrived at night, he decided that we were to sleep in a fortified station where a dozen or so military crew at night did not even feel safe extending their nose anywhere beyond the palisade and the surrounding minefield. The night passed peacefully, and from dawn we returned to work. We were hungry. The day before, we had eaten. We had all had eaten the bread we had taken with, with us. We started the morning with a fast, making it difficult to work. I asked our German Vorderbeet, I could, this is a German word. It's a German word for a foreman. Asked our German foreman, Heinz Kraske from Upper Silesia, when we were going to get something to eat. He answered my question in silence. He also had swallowed his last bite the day before. So Upper Silesia, I could be also pronouncing that place wrong. Um, that's, I believe that's part of Polish territory now because, you know, the borders changed, but then it was German territory. We all, we worked all day hungrily. And when, e- and when evening came in the next fortified station, we were given a mug of tea and went to sleep. Dreams are heavy when your stomach is empty, can't fall asleep easily, and the pangs wake you up frequently. On the third day, the same. We were given a cup of hot water and were sent to work. Feeling that I was weakening, I clenched my teeth, and dark patches alternating with bright ones flew before my eyes. The German gendarmerie looked after us were also famished, were famished too. I heard them cursing those who could not or forgot to provide them with food. Around noon, we completely stopped. No one had any strength when Kraska turned to us. Are we far from a village? Not a kilometre kilometer away, maybe one and a half, I answered. It was, we were near a village by the River Horin, where many... Rowney vacationers flocked to before the war. So note that a lot of these villages that I've I've kept some of the names of these villages in here, but a lot of them were completely wiped 
from the map um, after the war. And so it could be that, you know, if anyone's looking up these maps um, of where these villages are, a lot of them either, you know, the names change because it's just a different country now, or the villages were completely, you know, all of the inhabitants were, were killed or murdered and, you know, or maybe they ran away. So it's, um, it's diff- difficult to pinpoint exactly where, but um, got a good idea. After slowly driving several kilometers through the high-growing forest, we approached the railway bridge over the river. We got out of the truck. Kraska thought for a moment, scratched his head, glimpsed at us, and asked, Maybe we'll get something to eat there. Who will volunteer and come with me? We glanced at each other. There were no volunteers. Extensive forests were the favorite area for partisans, and they were stationed in the villages. I would not wish even the worst enemy to be in their hands. Silence lasted a long while as hunger twisted our bowels. He waited patiently and finally asked again, Well, who is going? I raised my hand and another desperate person joined me in a moment. Well, let's go, muttered our boss, in the car and drive. We sharply rushed from the spot, but when the truck pulled deeper into the forest, we slowed to a stop. Kraska turned off the engine and called us to the front. You know what these... Fireworks do? He asked, showing us German hand grenades with long wooden stems, like a so-called pestle. We know it, we replied in accordance. Well, look at it, rascals, he added. If necessary, unscrew the cap, pull the ring on the string, count to five and throw. You each get two. By hiding the pestles behind the belt of my trousers, I felt a little more confident. My My fears flew away somehow. I was armed, after all. The car began to move, and we rushed along the forest trail, clutching the handles in the cabin. After a while, we reached our destination, and the car halted violently on the wide road on the edge of the village. Kraska stayed in the car, not switching off the engine. I ran one way, my colleague the other, and we rushed to the nearby cottages. I came to a house, opened the door sharply, and came upon an older man sitting at a table, smoking a pipe. On top, there was a huge loaf of bread. I grabbed it, and before the man managed to open his mouth, I rushed out of the hut, tearing a large chunk out of the bread and pushing it into my mouth. I could hear screams in the village, but I didn't pay attention to them until I reached the road and froze. Kraska was gone. I saw only the dust and his disappearing car on the bend. He had driven away when he heard the voices of command in the village, leaving me at the mercy of fate. Shots rang out. There was no time to lose. I looked right out of the corner of my eyes. A dozen or so armed men were running towards me in the rural street. The bread fell out of my hand. I sprinted in full swing, hearing from behind the wheezings of the running men and repeated screams, Stitch! Stitch! The bullets whistled over my head. I ran with great effort. The three-day fast let me know what a weak person I was, and then I reminded myself of the grenades. I pulled the ring from the pestle, and without turning, I flew it down the road behind me. The explosion, the whirlwinds of the shards, and the moment of hesitation in the pursuers gave me a second of advantage, so I continued to run like a hare. Then, I suddenly noticed that in the fever of escape, I had made a big mistake. I had run away from the village to the forest, a partisan's favorite territory. 
would you like me to read a little more or is that enough? I think that's a good place to stop. Right. So um, you'll have to get the book if you want to find out what happens and also how um, knowing those songs, the Dunka, saves lives. Yes. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, so much is happening and the way that you're, that your grandfather and you as translator were able to just stay in the story and take a step-by-step so that it became clear what was going on um, is, is, I think that's a challenge, yeah, a challenge to be able to do that. I mean, you saw firsthand, uh, I sent you like an early (laughs) copy maybe a year ago, and Mm -hmm. as you said, even the first chapter was a bit confusing for anyone. You know, that's why I got the illustrations and I, Try to simplify it. I hope you thought the beginning was understandable. Yes. But... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. It was a, it was a huge, huge difference. And right. yeah. And, um, and the further I got into the book, the more gripping the story became. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. the one thing I was curious about was that, and maybe this is some of what you cut out because you said you had to cut out a lot of kind of the after the war part, but there's very little about your great grandmother. Um, who your great grandfather married and then later, later divorced, but after, you know, having your, your grandmother then, um, and so he writes a lot more about other women that he loved and not very much about the one he was married to for many years. Is there, is there a reason for that? (laughs) I feel like, um, it's that's a difficult one to answer because um you know i'm not sure they had let's say the best um you know relationship after they got divorced i mean i you know i my great grandmother she, she died the following year as him so they were both well into their 90s you know they lived a long life um but so you knew her too yeah yeah so i you know i i have pictures with her too and i've you know i went and saw her every, every time i went to poland um and it it just um yeah, I guess he didn't really want to talk too much about that. Maybe there was just some certain family things he wanted to keep out of it. I guess I, I guess maybe it just didn't um, kind of add to the message of the story. Mm-hmm. But that's that's yeah. my interpretation. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, I don't think he even says her name. Yeah, I, I'm not <laughs> sure. I don't even know if uh, maybe if she wanted wanted that Uh, i mean there's a lot some of the names it could be that he um you know people that may have still been alive maybe he changed a couple of names for privacy so i'm not sure about the accuracy of every single name but i know that a good portion of them are you know correct and all of the historical figures are correct okay and one of the things that was amazing is how he became reunited with his mother after the war i mean just the fact that they both survived it is pretty pretty yeah, incredible maybe. can you tell us a little bit about that about the journey to getting back there well about how you know how he found his mother again oh yes sure so um you know the war's over it's 1945 and you know there's all these millions of people in europe and you know there's there's americans there's russians and they're all you know intermingling in this area of europe because you know he was in the area right between where the, you know, the Americans and the Allies were coming and the, and the Russians were meeting them, um, you know, near Berlin. 
And so he ends up trying to take a train journey, you know, back to go to his home. But along the train journey, which takes months um, because of all the detours, um, along the train journey, you know, he becomes good friends with these these German girls who he ends up saving their lives from these, uh, not saving their lives, but saves them from rape from these Russian soldiers who, because it was quite uh, quite common for Russian soldiers at the time to to do such things. Um, you know, they had all the power and they were they were the victory soldiers. And they um, he he actually was given a gun, and so he almost shot some Russian soldiers for the German girls. If you think how ridiculous <laughs> that sounds, because you know the Russians are supposed to save everyone from the Nazis, it just um, yeah, it's insane. Um, but getting back to the point of what you're saying, um, you know, he what ends up happening along that journey. He also meets some people who were in the same area of Ukraine as him, and they tell him that that that's no longer Poland anymore. That's no longer his homeland. It's now the Ukrainian nationalists. They're still going crazy, and they're still even fighting the Russians even there. So that's no longer Poland, and so he needs to figure out, you know, well, where where would his mother go? Um, and so eventually he he manages to, you know, he was asking for some last names around, and he ended up in some in some some town that he knew he had relatives in, and he went there and he just, um, you know, was asking around for some last names, and he found his mother in a, in a town that is, you know, part of Poland today, Sokolov Podlaski, I believe. I could be butchering the pronunciation. Um, and so, yeah, and so she ended up living. His his mother, you know, stayed stayed put and then ended up going there. Don't know too much about, you know, how exactly she did. But the father is, I'm sure you must be wondering about that too, because the, his father um, is not mentioned after he's deported to Germany. And I, I've learned from my own mother and from the family, that, um, and I put this in a footnote, that his father just went missing. After he um, was deported to Germany, 1944, you know, the Germans are still there. It could be very easily that he was taken away by the Russians or the Germans, probably the Germans, um, because there's one point in the story where you learn about how he's a blacksmith and he's, you know, assembling weapons or doing something with weapons. And he also learns that there are, you know, strange firearms from unknown people. So it could be that my great grandfather's father was helping the Polish underground or doing something to help the resistance. And it could be that he was caught. But my great grandfather spent many years after the war looking for just find any record of what the heck happened to him. And he never never figured it out, never found out what happened to his father, and his mother had no clue either. So it's, wow. yeah. And then there's also a little family secret about his possible parentage. Which yes. Is, <laughs> That's which why is, it's called the Polish prince. Yes. <laughs> that his father may yeah. not have been his father, but... Yeah, and it's all in the end of the book. He gets a letter, and i got to find that letter, because if I if it's real, you know, that I know that family exists. I've looked them up online. You've, you see the coat of arms in the back of the book. Um, they live in Belgium now, you know, because a lot of these these no- noble families, the the noble uh, titles were abolished in like 1922 or something in Poland, and then when the Russians came and you know they the communist bloc, um, they had state collectivization and so they took any private property like like um, the property owned by a lot of these princely families and so they, a lot of them lost all of their wealth, but some of these families still exist. This family, the Chetvatinskys, they still exist, and I found some members of the family who were in the exact area that he was talking about, and so I know that there's something there. I've got to find a way to, I don't know, do a DNA test or find something, <laughs> um, 
But you've got to read the book to find out exactly how that all ties in. Yeah, DNA test could, could work. That could help. <laughs> yeah, or just, you know, finding a way to reach out to them. Yeah. Uh, I'll, do, yeah. I'll do it one day, figure yeah. it out, <laughs> get that letter. I, I was just looking through the book to, to come up with an example of um, like the poetic language and the kind of the originality of some of the language. And so this is, um, this is after the war when he's working as a um, fisherman on a boat. And um, so he's talking about, so he's on the boat. He goes, a high wave swayed the small boat and the deck danced underfoot. A sharp wind cut across our faces like a nettle. So just those, you know, the idea of the deck dancing underfoot and the wind as a nettle, I think are very, to me, seem very original and very poetic ways of describing things. I just, um, so, so can you tell me how much of that was like in the original language and how much of that would have been you. So a, a large, um, a, a large portion. Anything that seems like you know very original and something you know you've never heard before, it's probably him because it's. I guess it's just the you know the language he used because um, you know, he read so many books. If you if you read you know when you read the book, you learn a little bit about all these volumes of um, of you know. Polish literature and Ukrainian literature that he read when he was younger. And he, as he also mentions, um, it kind of, sorry, I mean, to also answering what I believe your mother said earlier about, you know, how did he remember all this? Well, he said that he, you know, he memorized like volumes of these, of these, you know, very long literature and poems and um, all this stuff. And so I guess it was just stuck in his head, but the, a lot of the sayings, it's all him. Um, the sayings are all him, but so a lot of the descriptive terms are things that I've added with my mother. Mm. So. Mom, do you have any other questions? No, I just I'm just amazed at this book. I mean, it's uh, you know, you you start reading, you think, oh my gosh, and then the next page, oh my gosh, <laughs> how did these survive? How did these survive? Yeah, oh, even God. even after the war, the danger wasn't over. Um, no. Because he was trying, he was helping, he was helping someone get across the board. Can you explain a little more who he was helping and who they were fleeing from and where they were fleeing to and where was he at that point? Yeah, so after the war, you know, you've, the, the communist, you know, all of, you know, Russia and the Soviet Union, it's, you know, imposed, as we all know, the Iron Curtain across Europe. And so there are a lot of people in that region who, you know, being pursued by the government um, and, you know, the KGB and whatever organizations were there, then the secret police. And, you know, there was still a lot of things happening like that. And, you know, these countries didn't really have their independence um, over the Soviet Union, as we all know. And that eventually changed in 1989 to 1991. But, you know, back then, you know, all these countries, after all these years of war, they wanted their freedom. So there's still people trying to resist against the Soviet Union. And so there were, there's a lot of corruption and a lot of people wanted to get out and go to the West. Now, you couldn't just necessarily, you know, as the Cold War started, you couldn't necessarily just cross from East to West as, you know, with the Berlin Wall, which my great-grandfather also found a loophole to go through later <laughs> in the book. Um, of course. <laughs> and so he, yeah. And so he, um, 
found he was contacted by just this guy in a, in a bar to help people cross an asylum route through some forest, which was patrolled loosely during certain times um, to cross into different, uh, you know, into Germany from Poland, where he was staying, because it was right at the border between the two. Um, wow. Yeah, so he was helping. This, there's this one individual <laughs> you learn about, just some home army soldier who... What, what's interesting is is that, so in the beginning of the war, you know, the Polish people, they're invaded by both the Germans and the Russians. Now, the Russians have since claimed, and, you know, all through these 80 years, they've claimed that they're actually liberating Poland um, and protecting it from the Nazis. That's what they've said. But, you know, these these Soviet um, soldiers were actually murdering Polish uh, soldiers, and anyone that was a Polish soldier then, you know, they were convicted and tried by the Russians as, you know, being an enemy. And so, you know, any of these former soldiers, you know, they, they didn't want to be there. They were going to be imprisoned and maybe maybe killed. And so there's this one guy that he manages to help escape um, to to the West. And then he ends up doing that multiple times. And, you know, there was maybe another route through the through his fishermen. But I think that it was, you know, too risky in the end. So. Yeah, no kidding. So where did your great-grandfather end up living out you know, sort of the rest of his life after after he settled down, or did he ever? <laughs> yeah, so that's that's the interesting thing. Um, after the war, you know, he he ends up living. He ends up, you know, staying in Poland. It's his homeland. That's where he wants to be. Um, but he does spend time in Germany. You know, he visits all of Europe, and he, he never really went back so much to Ukraine. I'm sure he went back and visited, but you know, he he lived in Warsaw for some time. Um, he, and that's, you know, where a lot of my family grew up. That's where my mother and my grandmother, uh, grew up. And that's where my grandmother is. Um, she's a journalist as well. And, uh, she, and so he, uh, he ended up, what really became his home was this region of Missouri, which you learn about. Um, and it, you know, that's, that's what I think is the most poetic time when he's talking about, you know, the, the scenery around there and just about mm-hmm. human nature and some different things. And he, you know, falls in love with a Missourian in Missouri, and he, even though he ends up leaving there, the last maybe 20, 30 years of his life, I believe he lived in Missouri. That's where we visited him um, with uh, with his with his wife. He yeah, he had a, one more wife. I think she's still alive. She was a bit younger, so she's maybe in her seventies now, maybe eighty. Um, but I mean, it'd be good to catch up with her. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, so he ended up living in Missouri. That was end. That was the the end, pretty much. Wow. And where is that exactly? Um, so that's uh, it was formerly Germ- German area, and these Missourian people, you know, they just call themselves Missourians. He ends up speaking in that last chapter or last couple chapters to this one guy who um, the authorities tried to convert him to being Polish um, instead of being technically German, and but you know he just basically says, oh, I'm Missourian. And so this is like an area of Poland. It's, um, I think it's Western Poland, but I, I could be, I believe that's right, Western Poland, to, to answer the question. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so he, just one last thing to add on what he ended up doing after the war. You read right on the, like, the last page, he spends at least a dozen years on um, traveling. What he ends up doing is leading some, some sort of travel agency he shows people around, especially Germans, he shows them around the areas um, that they grew up and 
he also shows them a lot of what they did um, during the war. So he spends 12 years doing these trips where there were these people that fled their homes because of the war and because of the, the Russians. And later on, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, my great-grandfather shows them around all the places that they remembered. And so, wow. yeah, he did that for a long time. Well, I think one of the main things that to take away from this book, because we're about out of time, but that to your great-grandfather, there wasn't any nation that was really the enemy. Nationalism was the enemy. And what do you think he would think about what's going on in the world today? Yeah, no, it, that's, that's why this, this book is so timely. It's, um, you know, he, he really, um, you know, he nailed when he talks in the end about this plague of nationalism. Um, and he talks about how it can spring up again, you know, if the memory's lost, if the stories, these stories aren't told. Uh, that's, it's, it's pretty much what's happening today. It's this nationalistic tendency, um, that's, you know, happened with, with the, with the war in Ukraine. It's just that the same atrocities are happening. It's not like this is completely different. It's the same area of the world. It's the same, the same things are happening. Um, but then again, I feel like he wouldn't blame, uh, of course, you know, you can, we can say the Russians invaded Ukraine. It is, you know, technically the Russians' fault for actually invading. But, you know, he wouldn't, he would see the humanity in both sides. Because there are Russians, there are probably, there are millions of them. You're probably afraid to speak out, but they, you know, they detest this war because it's, it's, it's pointless and, um, it's all political. And it's just insane that the, the exact same things that he, you know, foretold are happening today. Um, and yeah, in other parts why. of the world too, we, we see the rise of nationalism in other yeah. parts of Europe, in our own country. Um, that's true. So this is a good um, wake-up call. So in a way, yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. So what's your what's your next step with this book? So so I my mother helped me self-publish it. Uh, I'm looking to representation from a publisher. I have already I've just received some interest from a a really good publisher in London. Um, it looks really promising. So we'll see where that goes. But really, my end goal with this is I think that it's worth doing a documentary or movie about this. So there's two, so there's two yeah, ways you could do that. One, a documentary where you visit all of the places that he went. Well, that's what I'd love to do. I'd love to go now. That may be difficult in Ukraine because it's a war zone. <laughs> and then also an actual movie because I, I do believe it's movie worthy. And I've, I've already done a 30 page screenwriting thing for this and I've been in contact with some people to run the David Lynch MFA with screenwriting and movies. Um, and so I, that's really the end goal to make it into an actual uh, movie because just, you know, keep the story alive. And I, I'd really love to play my great grandfather. The problem is I need to learn the languages and I have been trying to <laughs> publish. But you do look like gotta, him. I do. That's, yeah, it yeah. helps, you know, yeah. and it adds to the story. <laughs> yeah. I've got footage of him talking about these experiences before he passed away that year. Um, I've, I, we recorded just some short videos of him talking about exactly what he saw. Oh, so, fantastic. you know, that's gold. That's timeless. Um, that, yeah. Yeah. Well, Polo, we are out of time. Got Speaking it. of timeless and, and you've been listening to writers voices with Polo Altinsky Ross, author of the Polish Prince. And, Mom, do you have a closing quote for us? Yes, this actually comes from, the, it's in the book, in the beginning. Since wars begin in the minds of men, 
it is in the minds of men that the defenses of peace must be constructed. That's the preamble to the Constitution of UNESCO in 1945. If people would only listen. Yeah. Well, thank you, Polo, and congratulations on getting this book published, and we look forward to seeing what comes next. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.